The unexpected storylines that have emerged out of this year's playoff series have been shocking and entertaining, depending on who you cheer for. But the one constant that we've seen in these playoffs that has stirred the pot for all the wrong reasons is inconsistent officiating. And this week, we saw it again, and it burned the Blues badly in Game 3. Is there a huge problem, and what can be done to fix it? Plus, we have a wide range of reactions to Essa Lindell and his big pay raise, the Sabres' new coach, the Hurricanes' future, and the coaching candidate in Ottawa that will shock you. Episode 172 of the Lace Month Podcast is fully loaded, and the fun starts right now. It's time to lace them up. Here's Brett and Steve. And welcome to the show, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Steve Ellsworth. I'm Brett Tubuff. Before we go any further, we're going to delve into the Hockey Hall of Fame book of trivia. Brett, are you ready for this week's question? I am, yes. Question 58 is as follows. Though Wayne Gretzky popularized it, he wasn't the first to make plays behind opponents' nets. Which Hall of Famer is credited with the, with, uh, the first employing of this tactic which guy did it first is it a bernie Federko, b brian trottier c jacques lemaire or d bobby clark um we're talking behind the net plays which hall of famer is credited with employing this tactic first uh uh, this is I hate these kind of questions because um, like in, like I don't know like I when you said all that stuff I assume that they're all like around Wayne Gretzky's time because I feel like whoever this is is someone who is just before Wayne Gretzky. Um, who was the third one? Was it John Beliveau? Is that right? So, uh, well, it's, it's a habit. It's not Beliveau. So I'll oh. go over the options. A, Bernie Federko. B, Brian Trottier. C, Jacques Lemaire. Uh, D, Bobby Clark. Okay, it's either Bobby Clark or Jacques Lemaire. Um, I'm going to go with Jacques Lemaire. Well, you're right. It came down to one of those two. Unfortunately, it was not Jacques Lemaire. Oh, wow. It was Bobby Clark. Because I was thinking, because when I think of Bobby Clark, I think of like the Broad Street Bully. So I was thinking like, oh, because he's like, you know, because I sort of think of the Broad Street Bullies as like the rough and tumble, aggressive mm. types, and they're not. Yeah, just like know. yeah, behind the net plays like a Broad yeah. Street Bully would craft that up. Right, right, exactly. So okay, well, I guess Bobby Clark is, uh, is a good player. <laughs> yeah, he is a, a very good player. Um. I don't know how to transition into this, so I'm just going to go out and say yep. it. Uh, last week, we had uh, Brian Fraser as our special guest. We really enjoyed uh, his uh, chat, his insight, um, and uh, found out a couple of days ago that um, he's got a health scare that he's dealing with. Um, I don't know if you're a religious person or not, but uh, please keep him in your thoughts and prayers. Um a lot for him to process he's very optimistic um about his odds but uh it's a pretty significant health scary it just happened a couple days ago so um we don't know 
we can't confirm what it is, but um, it's it's a, a probably a pretty scary time for Brian. So uh, keep keep him in your thoughts, and Brian will pull in for you. And yeah. uh, we we can't wait to to talk hockey some other time because we know you got this. Yeah, uh, positive thoughts going your way for all of us here at least a month. Um, we yeah. hope we hope for the best and everything like that. Um, it's, it's always. It, yeah. I I have a feeling he, he's going to be fine. He's yeah, he'll be, be a, fine. He's yeah, going to beat same. it, but it's it it's just you know anytime you you go through a health scare like that or you see someone go through a health scare, you it yeah it, it's still a shock. You have to be yeah way. you have to be careful with that for yeah. sure. Anyways, um, I I don't know how we segue from that to the main topic. No, but, no, uh, me neither. Brett, uh, uh, <laughs> Brett, we're we're gonna be talking about uh, controversial officiating this week. Yeah, exactly. This is a great transition here. Um, yeah, the um, yeah, the the officiating has not been good. Uh, we're kind of understating the fact here. I mean, we will go over it, but um, if you've listened to us or if you paid attention to the these playoffs, you. I already know that the officiating hasn't been great, um, but none more so than what happened in Game Two of the uh, Blue Sharks game. It was um, actually game. It was Game Three, not Game Two. Oh right, that's right. Because uh, Game Three was when they played um, in St. Louis. Yeah. Yeah, right. yeah. The series was tied at one. Winner takes yeah. a two-one series lead. That's right. Um, anyways, <laughs> the point remains that uh, it was very egregious. Um, there was, it was in the overtime, um, and Timo Meyer uh, hand passes it to Eric Carlson, who then sh- uh, shoots it and scores the goal. Um, it was very obvious that it was a hand pass, um, and then apparently, like the refs just leave the ice. The Blues were staying on because they thought it was going to be reversible. But apparently, according to the rule book, it's not uh, re- it's not reviewable. It can't um, it can't be changed um, because the refs didn't see it um, on the first go, uh, which is you know pretty upsetting when you think about it. Um, yeah. Series uh, so even the series supervisor said the play was not reviewable. Uh, Colin Campbell says the play should have been blown dead. Um, instead of what happened. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, there's uh, other things like, you know, um, Eakin, uh, the, the Cody Eakin, Paul Stasny suspension that was too much um, and ended up uh, causing the Sharks to get four straight goals. Um, McAvoy uh, hit to the head and Dean Kukons hit to the head. Uh, they both should have been a game, um, a game misconduct. Instead, they just get two minutes. Um, although I guess McAvoy eventually did get a game suspension. Uh, Landeskog had an offside rule. Although this one is more like technically it was offside. It was just um, you know it was kind of just unfortunate. And then there was also the puck. Off the that hit the netting on in the game two of the uh, Columbus Bruins um, game, and uh, and then Panarin scores a couple seconds later when it should have just been called dead. Uh, so 
with all those instances in mind, I'm sure I'm forgetting stuff. I'm sure um, if we came up with more, there there are more coming. Um, so with all that in mind, um, what should be done and what what do we think will be done? Well, those are two loaded questions because, uh, <laughs> like these playoffs, uh, it, it's it's honestly unpredictable. I don't know what they're gonna do, but um, j- just just try to absorb the the play itself. Um, I, I saw this play from a couple of angles. There was one angle where it appears like an optical illusion of the shark's gloves for the most part, except for you know um, you know the brand writing are plain black. The palm plain black as well the puck is plain black you may not see the hand pass from that angle but there's a camera from the right face off circle where meyer was on his knees four blues players in the right face off circle surrounding him he takes a swipe at the puck while it's in midair and it goes to nyquist and then goes to carlson for the game winner you can clearly see where meyer was that it was a hand pass because if the puck had stayed on its current course midair it would have fallen at Myers' right knee. But it changes direction, goes to the left where Nyquist is, and then it goes to Carlson for the game winner. That is a hand pass. That is illegal. And I'm I'm just baffled. Like the the next the the literally the next day, the Bruins and Hurricanes play game four. Six hand passes were called in that game, the most in a game in months. Yeah. So the fact that you can review high sticks, you can review goalie interference, you can't review a hand pass that happens three seconds, three seconds later, the puck goes in, uh, into the net. You can't review that. Like you, you review offsides 60 seconds before a goal is scored. And a hand pass that leads to a goal three seconds later, uh, we can't review it. Yeah, it, it baffles my mind when I find out. What do you mean it's not reviewable? That should one hundred percent be reviewable. It's ridiculous. It is ridiculous, and it's it's yeah. It was unfortunate for the Blues. Um, obviously now they're they're in pretty good shape right now. Um, yeah, as we'll talk they, about they, in a, in a little are. bit. But um, yeah, no, it, like at the time, you know, they were down two one in the series, and now they're up three two in the series. We'll talk about that in a bit, but. You know, um, at the time, yeah, it, it was. It, I thought it was going to be one of those things where, like, okay, now the sharks are just going to keep on rolling because destiny is on their side. Because they also got away with the uh, the Paul Stasny Eakin uh, type situation um, in ga- in this in the first round. Um, but yeah, no, it, this it, it seems crazy because when I was when I saw the replay, because I, I wasn't watching the game live, but when I saw the replay and I uh, kept on watching all the all the different angles like you were, um, yeah, it seems like it, like it was such an obvious play uh, to call back. And it seemed like it was like, okay, this should have been called back. Um, and then it wasn't, you know, it seems like hand passes, something so simple like that, um, where everyone believe like knows that hand passes aren't, you know, legal, um, and it was so egregious that that should have been called back. But it's ridiculous that it can't be called back because of it. Um, having said all that, 
Um, like, if we're gonna start reviewing every single thing, it's gonna, like, take, like, I feel like the only downside is it's gonna take, like, away so much time, um, on the, uh, you know, on the game if we start reviewing every icing, every, you know, hand pass, every, like, any type of instance that, uh, could happen. So I think there, like, something needs to be done, but there needs to be a way that it's not like we're taking, like, six hours into the game because we're reviewing yeah, literally I, everything. I definitely agree that there's a limit where you're just like, okay, yeah. you need to stop and think, really, do we need to review this? But hand passes where a play is blown dead, where, like, you can review high sticks, you can't review hand passes. Like, even suspect high sticks, you know, that look legit, get called back sometimes. And this is a blatant hand pass that leads to an OT winner. Like, I, there, there, I, I, I definitely think that plays like hand passes, plays like five-minute majors, they definitely have to consider expanding review to those areas, 100%. Yeah. Because that, those are two potentially series-changing calls. Now, fortunately for the Blues, it might be a series-changing call for the better, but if you ask the Vegas Golden Knights, the one that they got ended their season. So, um what what's what's interesting between this call and uh, the Vegas Golden Knights call in game 7 the Vegas Golden Knights had a 3 nothing lead as we know the Sharks scored four power play goals with that 5 minute major that they got it should be noted the Blues scored four times in that second period to lead 4-3 they iced the puck with a minute 26 and a minute 20 left Jaden Schwartz missed an empty netter they had chances to close this game out yeah. Logan Couture ties the game at four in the in the dying seconds of regulation to force overtime. So if for anyone that says St. Louis lost this game on this play, it could have ended in regulation and they could have won. They could have avoided this whole thing if they had closed out the game. So for, for anyone that says this cost the St. Louis Blues the game, just a little bit of an asterisk that they had a chance to close out the game and they didn't. But the bigger picture is, of course, these bad calls that just keep reoccurring every now and again. And the last thing you want is the 1999 Buffalo Sabres or the 2004 Calgary Flames who feel like they got robbed on a series-ending Stanley Cup final-ending play. So um, that that's why we're talking about this. Now, um, there have been a couple of suggestions, Brett, uh, that we uh, spitballed. Uh, one of them made by uh, Hurricanes coach Ron Brendan. Yeah, I was about to get to that one. Yeah. Um, so, 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 what, what's, what's your thoughts on that? What was? Brent yeah. Brent well, was first, that? I'll, I'll get to what he, what he's talking about. Um, it's uh, so I actually have his full quote here. Um, yeah. Here. Uh, so it's been. Uh, so he was watching, uh, he was asked about the, uh, the missed call, um, in the overtime and whether or not it is time to use more replay. Um, he says it's been time forever. Uh, Brendan Moore, um, said I was sitting at home with my son watching that game. There was a play earlier that it was one of those puck flipped over the glass and said, watch how long this is going to take when we know. When we'll know within three seconds, and we did. NBC showed a review. It's a penalty. 
the refs were actually quick to say no penalty, but it's time. We can go with this forever. It's time. It's time to get the calls right because it's just too important. The games matter so much. I don't know. That was tough last night to watch. Um, this was obviously the next day. Um, he continued, help the refs. These refs are great refs. Live, you, can, you can't tell. There are so many calls where I go. I don't really know when. Then I look down. I see it. Then I lose my mind because I know it's the wrong call. But they can't be. Well, yeah, and and and, and to, to sorry to interrupt, and I'll, I'll let you finish in a second. To to his point, like the refs don't have the perspective of the camera angles in real time. Yeah, like they're not always going to get the picture perfect angle that's they what need he, to make the right call. Well, that's basically what he's saying. But they yeah. can't be expected to make these those calls like that. It's way too hard. There's an easy solution for it. I think they will get to it because this can't keep going on. It's tough. Um, then he starts talking about the slippery slope that we just talked about, about like the, you know, it would take too long to do expanded replay. Um, so his, his suggestion was to have two refs in the booth, you know, kind of like, um, uh, up top, um, during, uh, you know, outside of the game. Um, yeah, they're, yeah. So, they're so where Sarah the announcers Sivian, are. Uh, Sarah Sivian added to that. Uh, yeah. Uh, saying his suggestion would be to have two, I guess, off-ice officials sitting in the penalty boxes yeah. watching on iPads. Yeah. And, while the game is going on. Um, and that's an interesting thing because that's like, I guess it, it's the idea of like viewers at home, you know, we can see things that the refs can't always see. Yeah, um, so, especially stuff behind the plate too, because yeah. like you know they're they're chasing after the puck. They don't have time to right. check behind them. It's just like, oh, what's going to like the the back left? Yeah. Thing, you know? So from that end, I I do like that. I still feel like it's a little crazy because like the, the refs when they do review the calls, they look at the iPads and they're so small that it seems like. I would rather like the refs have like a big TV just so that they can yeah like, like an HD focus. camera yeah I would, basically I would think I would think you know they'd have all right. those things at the, their disposal like the best of the best technology like HD stuff to to make yeah. the right call and and to Colin Campbell's point he said while he while he did say uh, that play should have been blown dead he says you know not everyone has access to you know the HD TVs you know the viewers at home have not everyone sees the clear picture that maybe the refs don't. And yeah. my, 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 uh, response to that is I would think they already have those HD TVs. Like it's the NHL. It's a professional hockey league. Like right. surely they have the best of the best, right? Yeah, of course. And then, um, I, this article I'm reading says that maybe the solution is that like they switch to an NFL style format where every scoring play is automatically reviewed for anything that could deem it illegal just like that hand pass was or uh, the puck hitting the net or like an offside play or whatever. Um, the league can already review for whatever, whether or not the puck totally crossed the line or potential high sticking infraction, it should not be issued to add other elements of the place to that. So like maybe just add more things to uh, reviewable goals and just review every goal that happens. Um, mm. Literally, even like, not just if it like if there's a goalie interference or something like that, um, which is an interesting idea. I still feel like that might take too long. And also, like the the thing with offsides, 
like, you know, reviewing these offsides. It's a bit of a can worms issue because, like, on one hand, yeah, there's some times where offsides are very egregious um, and should be called. But then there's other times, like that Landeskog play, where, like, Landeskog was just getting off the bench. Um, and, like, technically, he was offsides, but that shouldn't have been called because he wasn't really interfering with the play, and the goal happened, like, 10 seconds later. So, so you do come with those kind of can of worms where, like, yeah, there's a hand pass, but maybe it, it doesn't exactly affect the goal that's happening. Um, so th that's another factor to consider um, in changes. Regardless, changes have to be made. Um, like, you can't... The NHL is a joke if, if they continue this um, this way. Yeah. Um, there's, there's also an interesting um, theory from uh, TSN's Travis Yost, and, and he explained this in how management is kind of the problem. I'll give you a bit of a quote as to what he said. So here's what Travis Yost says. In a sport where goal scoring is already hard to come by, a handful of bad calls in a game can emphatically change the outcome of a game and a series. Case in point, Vegas, San Jose, Game 7. At this point, there is ample debate within the hockey media and fan base about how to fix the problem. I do believe the NHL has plenty of talent within the officiating ranks. The issue is more that even with this talent calling games, the error rates appear incredibly high. The one aspect I haven't seen a solution for is how to fix the human behavioral issues that have long existed within officiating ranks. Research exists on this front, but the long and short of it is that officiating teams don't call games, they manage them. Michael Lopez's seminal research clearly exhibited what he called quote-unquote biased impartiality or an officiating team's attempt at being perceived as fair above all else. Phil Birnbaum's also showed similar results. This is critical, he says, because it's the one data point we have that suggests refs have more of an interest in balancing calls than getting calls right. That is a foundational fa failure, and until it is fixed, you always have quality criticisms. The best way to show this, simplistically speaking, is to show how actual referees behaved against simulated referees. And it goes on to show a data chart which shows three things. Officiating teams almost never call a game where a team has none of the penalties or all of the penalties, which seems almost impossible. You can guess what happens in the middle. Nearly 60% of games saw an even or close to even split in penalties called, regardless of how many minors or majors were observed over the course of the game. Combine this with Lopez research, Travis Yost says, which shows teams call for multiple infractions in a row are much more likely than not to draw a penalty in the future and you can conclude that game management is at the heart of everything officiating teams work for. The only conclusion left is that the evening up of all penalty calls is the goal of officiating teams, and that's a problem. Listening to 67's games and producing them for many years at the radio station I work for. One of the guys in the broadcast booth, Kenny Waltz, has mentioned this so many times I can't count them all on one hand. <laughs> if one team has four power plays after 40 and the other has one, he says, that, he says, watch the power play chances to be close to, to each other or dead even by the end of the game. And sometimes he's seen questionable calls that, have been, that haven't been called in the game up until that point, and they start getting called later in the game. That's game management. This is not fiction. This is a thing. Right. 
yeah um yeah no you're right it's uh something needs to be done i'm not necessarily sure but uh i feel like so much stuff has happened that uh something has to be done for sure um during this off season do you, do you think do you think expanding video review is going to fix everything though um well how do you mean like in well it depends on how they're going to expand video well, um, you you post this you post this question to me in an email uh, regarding the hand pass. Are you allowed to touch the puck if it's less than a second? I'm not sure that counts in this case, though. That's definitely an intended pass. And and that's oh, a few yeah, of the yeah. questions that I'm sure would have been brought up during a meeting of the minds if it went to right. video review. Oh, right. Because well, my point. Well, initially, I was kind of confused because I thought that I think you're allowed to like touch the puck with your hand. But just so that you can bring it down to to the ice, like you can't like literally pass it. Um, so like that was a pretty egregious, and that was obviously a hand pass. Um, but I, I could see that maybe happening in another time where like it it like you know you touch the puck, but it wasn't like an intent to pass. Um, mm -hmm. So so maybe maybe there's some leeway there. Um, yeah, but like I think I feel like all these like offside uh, penalties or even like goalie interference stuff. There's always some like there's a lot of instances where it leads to some gray area where you're like, does it really like would that really affect the play? Would that really affect the goal if he was offsides? Like yeah, he, that guy was offsides, but it didn't even really matter. Like the Landeskog play. Or is it like, you know, or even sometimes like a goalie interference where like a goalie like purposely uh, dives um, or draws contact just because he knows that there's going to be goalie interference that way. So, yeah. you know, um, you know, so there yeah. could be like if you do open uh, more plays up, there is a chance for like that type of situation to happen more often. Mm hmm. Yeah, so, so I'll give you a couple more examples. Game four, Bruins' third goal. There was debate if there should have been icing on Boston. There wasn't. Play continues. Boston scores. Right. Second power play goal that Boston scored in that same game also drew controversy if the Canes should have been penalized for in the first place for goalie interference. There's always going to be debate on certain calls, and you can't have all the technology in the world at your disposal. You can have all the technology in the world. And there's still going to be human errors because it's still a human sport. 100% right. of the time, making the right call, it's just not going to happen. Yep. All all expanding video review is going to do is it's just going to give the refs a chance to make the right one. It yep. doesn't guarantee they will make the right call. Yeah, and like not to mention, like even if they do review it, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to make the right call still. Yeah. You know? Exactly. So, that's exactly what I mean. Yeah. That's, that's your point. Yeah. So yeah. it's... um. Yeah, I mean, it, it's something that needs to be fixed, but, like, it's it's not just an NHL problem. I mean, the NFL had had a crazy pass interference call that wasn't, um, that affected the entire game um, in the NFC yeah. Championship yeah. game. So, uh, for the Saints, so it's, like, uh, there's, and the, there's always, like, a what is a catch, what isn't a catch um, type of situation for football. So it's like, uh, yeah, it, it's something that needs to be fixed, but it's not, it's not going to be, I don't think it's going to solve anything. Um, but having said that, I don't think it's going to matter 
um, in the grand scheme of things, just because, like, just something needs to be done where it shows that the NHL is making an effort to fix it, um, even if it's not necessarily always going to work. Um, For sure. Also, Martin St. Louis was annoyed. I was trying to find his tweet, but I can't find it. I guess he was down, but he was saying how, like, the, I mean, like everyone, the, the refs were very, um, he was he was calling out the refs um, on Twitter. I don't know where, I guess he deleted it, but he was, he was annoyed. Uh, so. uh, no, he didn't delete it. I saw it today. Oh, um, okay. Then I, I just didn't I, find I, it. I, I, I I, I basically the gist of it was these games are, are too important. Like take 20 seconds to make the right call. Uh, like the, the games are too close. That's basically the gist of what he said. I think at the time, I don't think he realized that hand passes. I think a lot of us were thinking hand passes surely are reviewable. Apparently not. Right. Right. I think he was operating under the assumption when he wrote that tweet that hand passes were reviewable, yeah. but you know, come to think of it, it's like it's. I guess it's something that like hand passes hardly ever happen in games, um, so it seems like maybe it's, you know, when they were writing these rules, they're like, all right, well, we're gonna find out hand passes are you know reviewable, but um, I guess it's not. Um, and I, then, I, I feel like yeah. some of the rules that were added on, it's mainly because something happened that led to this rule being created. Yep. And at the time, we didn't have this costly precedent of hand passes costing a team a crucial game in a series, and now we have one. Yeah. So. True. Um, so I think we covered everything so far. Hopefully yeah. something happens, but uh, we'll see. I, I'm sure they're going to address this in the summer or the offseason. Um, but we'll just have to see. Um, all right, let's go to, well, first off, we're going to do a Hurricanes postmortem, but I do want to mention that we are going to talk about how awesome the Bruins are doing right now, but, uh, that's going to be, that's going to come later in the Bruins, uh, send segment. So stay tuned for that if you were looking forward to that. Um, but first we're going to do a Hurricanes postmortem and a few other NHL items here. Um, the uh so yeah so the hurricanes uh got swept by the bruins here um in four games i I was a little bit surprised by that to be honest because i thought just watching the first two rounds with the hurricanes um against the the islanders and even how they played against the capitals i was thinking like okay the hurricanes i was i thought the bruins were going to win the series but i thought the hurricanes were going to show a little bit more of a fight um against the Bruins, but it turned out that they, they weren't really, I guess there was like a couple of, like, I think like the first period of game three, they were turning it on. Uh, definitely in game one, they were turning it on, but like game two and game four, they were just dead the entire time. Uh, Tuka Rask was just unbelievable. Um, and so was the defense for the Bruins. I guess I'm already talking about how amazing the Bruins are right now, but um, it's inevitable, right? Inevitable. But like, I, I guess my point was is that like the I thought the Hurricanes were going to put up more of a fight, but um, but then it, it you know it, it seemed like uh, just the Bruins were just on another level, um, and that the Hurricanes um, weren't there, and I I feel like the Hurricanes you know they they definitely overachieved, but. That doesn't mean that they're like they they don't have like a bright future ahead of them. 
Um, they have guys like Tavo Teravainen, who's 24 years old, who I just found is 24 years old. That's kind of nuts. Um, of course, they have Andrei Sevejnikov, who's 19 years old. I mean, he had his moments. Uh, they have Nino Niederreiter, who's 26. Sebastian Ajo, who's 21, which is absurd. Um, so, like, those are, like, you know, their four, four best po- uh, forwards. And they're all, like, they're all, like, relatively young. So they have, their window is wide open. Um, not to mention that they have a lot of cap space um, this uh, coming months um, with, uh, let's see here. So Sebastian Ajo, who's going to get paid, he's an RFA. Brock McGinn and Clark Bishop are also RFAs. Um, and then you have Justin Williams, who's a, who's the captain He's a UFA, Craig McGeg, Keg, who's an awesome name, um, who has an awesome yeah. name, uh, who's a UFA, and Michael Furland, who's probably gone, but he's a UFA. Um, and then there was also reports that Scott Darling's going to be bought out. Uh, Peter Morazic and Curtis McElhaney are also UFAs as well. So they have to figure out their uh, goaltending situation, but like just from their forwards and their defense is pretty much locked up um for the for the time being although i guess they have justin falk who's going to be ufa next year um but like they still have dougie hamilton jacob slavin uh calvin dehan and brett pesci for a couple more years um so you know their defense is looking pretty good their offense is looking pretty good um and you know they have a couple they have a lot of cap space now so they're in pretty good shape actually um, they do need to figure out a goaltender. Maybe Robin. Maybe they can sign Robin Leonard. That would be kind of interesting. But um, it does seem like they are in good shape. Yeah. So I'll, I'll rattle it back a, l- a little bit uh, as to why they lost. So more why the Bruins won. Mostly why the Hurricanes lost. Um, they showed they could hang with Boston for most of Game One. That statement period of Game Three was huge. Um, I don't think they were as opportunistic as Boston, and um, I also don't think they were the most composed team. Yeah, Um, I was going to say, I felt like, sorry. You you, you look at... Sorry to cut you off there. No, no, you you chime in. It's okay. What's your point? What's your point? Uh, My point, well, it was just to add on to what you were saying is that they were, like, I think they had way more hits than the Bruins did in this series. But like the Bruins had a lot more shots, yeah, they were pretty and they had a more, mm-hmm. yeah. they had better possession numbers. But like the the Hurricanes out physicaled the Bruins, for sure. All right, yeah. sorry, continue. Yeah, they, they they were definitely uh, throwing their weight around. For yeah, sure. yeah. Um, but uh, that there was that uh, game too. Like there was the lopsided third period, um, and the special teams for Boston was absolutely killer. Like. The Bruins would have combined seven for fourteen in this series. That's fifty yep. percent of the panel the, the power plays they get they capitalize on. After going one for two in the first period of game one, Hurricanes 0 for twelve the rest of the way on the power play. Yeah. Like they lost the special teams battle big time. And um that, that really hurt them in the long run. Um I also think they didn't manage the momentum as well as Boston did. They had that huge period in game three where they got like twenty shots. Uh, on Tuka Rass. They had 14 power play shots in the game. They had four power plays in the first period. Didn't get a single goal in the first period. And what does Boston do? 
they outshoot Carolina 18 to six the next frame, grab a two nothing lead, hang on to win the game two to one. That was Carolina's chance to get back into the series. And if I have to pin it on one play that could maybe turn the series around, it's the first 20 seconds of game three where Rask is down and out. I can't remember if it was Tara Bynum. It was, it was some guy in Carolina off the top of my head. Can't remember exactly who takes a shot, hits the post and then goes wide. Yeah. Like that was their best chance to score on Rask the entire series. And the puck luck just wasn't there for them. And um, it, like, if you can get the Bruins down one nothing in the first 20 seconds of a game, that definitely helps your cause, especially in front of that raucous Carolina crowd. That, that would have been huge for them at that point in time uh, to get a, a big goal like that. Um, but uh, Tuka Rask held his own. Justin Williams, I think, kind of unraveled in this series. And I hate to say that because Justin Williams is so used to being Mr. Game 7, Mr. Clutch. Yep. Always coming up with big plays. In game two, Brad Marchand played him like a sad violin, forced him to take a penalty. In the first period of game three, he had three minor penalties on his own, which is so uncharacteristic of him. And when your veteran captain, your leader, starts taking penalties like that, I think I think the rest of the squad feels that. And um, I, I think from a composure standpoint, the Bruins held it together the Hurricanes didn't. Yep. So that brings us to uh, the Hurricanes' future. As you mentioned, Scott Darling's contract's probably coming off the books. He's one of the three or four players that have, an, that have a modified no trade. Uh, his AAV is over $4 million per year, so that'll probably save up some more cap space. They already have 28.7-something million in cap space right now. Um, you mentioned Morassic and McElhinney, both UFAs. There's Guys like Barlamov on the open market, guys like Robin Leonard, Bobrovsky, they probably won't get, but uh, there's Mike Smith as well. There's there's a lot of veteran UFA goalies they could target. Um, there's also Alex Nedeljkovic, so it'll be interesting to see if they give him a longer leash, maybe give him a one-way instead of a two-way if they think he's ready. So that'll be interesting to see what they do there. Uh, Michael Furland is interesting because he is a guy that maybe has top six potential that also provides grit. But when I look at guys like Dustin Brown and David Backus and Milan Lucic being the biggest one, like those are rough and tumble guys that once they hit their 30s, their power, their production starts to take a dip. Significant. And that's what I fear for Mikhail Furland. If he's going to be that rough and tumble kind of guy, if he still wants to be that physical presence and they're going to pay him a crap ton of money to produce on top of that, that's kind of a risky gamble going into year three or year four of that contract. So that's that. That's why I'm a bit hesitant there. Uh, Sebastian Ajo is probably going to be the biggest name they'll have to pay. He's getting upwards of $7 million at least, maybe 8 9 10 who knows. Um, I like the upside that Jakob Slavin showed in these playoffs. Didn't get a point in the Bruins series. But he had 11 assists in 11 games before that. And in game three of that Boston series, he almost played half the game. Yeah. Like in a regulation loss, he played 28 minutes and 50 seconds, which is a monster, monster line. So um, I like him. I like Brett Pesci as the future of the Hurricanes blue line. Dougie Hamilton's a UFA in two years. It'll be interesting to see what happens there. Uh, Justin Falk has a 15-team trade list with one year left on his deal. 
Uh, Trevor Van Riemsdyk, also a UFA at the same time. Falk is. On forwards, you have Stahl, Teravainen, Niederreiter, soon to be Sebastian Ajo, probably, as the only guys under contract for longer than the next 24 months. So they're a lot like the Islanders in that sense, where they can do a lot with their forward core. I would like to see them bring back Justin Williams for another year or two because of the job that he was able to do outside of round three. He was very effective for them. Um, on the draft floor, they have three second rounders this year, potentially three thirds next year. They have cap space. They have a lot going for them. But if they sit back and don't do anything to improve their team this off season, they are going to take two steps back in the standings, guaranteed. They cannot be the 2017 centers in the offseason thinking, oh, this group goes to the conference finals. We'll be fine. They need to improve their roster, and if they don't, they're going to really, really feel it next year. Yeah, I, I wonder if this team's going to regress next year, because I know the Atlantic division is not necessarily an easy division to get um, well, into. The, the Atlantic and the Metro division are equally tough now. Did I say yeah, it? Oh, I, me- I meant the Metro. The, the I meant Metro's the Metro. going to be interesting because Columbus has got a lot of answers, uh, yep. a lot of questions to them as well. And not to mention the Rangers and the Devils now have Kako and uh, Jack Hughes, yeah. depending on who that is. But yeah. yeah, so Carolina, and of course you have Crosby and Ovechkin in that division as well. Um, but yeah, it's mm-hmm. it's going to, uh, you know, I do wonder if Carolina, um, how Carolina is going to do next year. But at the same time, you know, as I mentioned, all these players' ages, like they're very young. Um, even if they, I mean, obviously, even if they don't have Justin Williams, like, Tavo Teravainen is 24, Sebastian Ajo is 21, Dougie Hamilton's 25, Jacob Slavin's also 25, uh, Nino is, uh, 26, like, they don't really have a lot of 30-year-olds, um, I'm just looking here briefly, like, the only 30-year-olds that they have that are gonna be on the team next year is Jordan Stahl, and he's 30. Um, and that is if they don't re-sign Justin Williams and they don't re-sign, um, or if they drop, uh, Scott Darling. Um, so, like, everyone else is, like, very young. They're all in their 20s, um, which is kind of nuts when you think about it in this day and age, because a lot of teams have, like, you know, 30-year-olds or whatever, but, um, they're very young. Um, and so they're going to be like, maybe they're not going to, they're going to regress next year, but they're going to be, you know, in the mix, uh, for years to come. It's not like, you know, they'll, they'll be good in a couple of years. I feel like, um, it just wasn't their time this year. Yeah. I wonder if they're going to do something sneaky in the off season, like maybe trade for Nylander or sign Marner to, or yep. somebody else to like an offer sheet. Yeah, that'll be interesting. That would be interesting. They have the cap to do it. They do. I will say though that they need to find a goalie though, um, especially with like not that like McElhinney, um and Morazic were bad, but they need to figure out a way to uh, to cope with that. I know that they have Nedeljkovic in the system, so maybe they call him up. But um, yeah. I feel like you you need someone else, not just like your your top pros- goalie prospect in the mix. Um, all right, let's yeah, get... Yeah, like I said, maybe just like someone, maybe like someone that buys him some time like Mike Smith for a couple of years. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's go to the rapid fire here. Um, 
Blue Sharks. Um, that series is still going on. I would be surprised if this ends in six games, which would be the next game. Um, but um, it just so happens that it's not great for the Sharks. It's not looking great for the Sharks. Um, Hurdle uh, got hit in the head by Barbashev. Pavelski got hit in the head by Pitarangelo. Um, it looks like Eric Carlson's also out, and uh, although Junis Donskoy isn't doesn't have the same skill level as those three guys I just mentioned, but um, he's also injured. Uh, I guess he got uh, um, hit in the ankle by uh, Justin Braun, um, or not not Braun, um, someone else. But um, yeah, so like the Sharks are kind of uh, not. Gr- great health-wise um, because of this. Um, it's unclear if Hurdle, Pavelski, Carlson, or Donskoy will play in Game 6. Obviously, that affects things if they if all four aren't able to play um, in the next in the next game. Um, but, yeah, it's looking like the Blues are um, the team to be here. Um, but it seems to be like, you know, it's very physical, it's very um, shot-heavy, but uh, it also seems like, you know, Bennington has outplayed Martin Jones, which is what we kind of thought was going to happen. So um, there's that. Also, Jaden Schwartz is unbelievable. Um, he has like 11 goals um, in these playoffs. He had a hat trick in game uh, five um, just there. So, yeah, we'll see um, how it goes in game six. But um, it's one of those things where I wouldn't be surprised if the Sharks uh, get game six and maybe we get a game seven, but, um, at the same time, like the blues seem to have it handled, um, at least from game five and game four, they seem to, uh, figure things out after that hand pass game. Yeah. I, I'm almost tempted. I'm almost wanting to cheer for Martin Jones to face Boston and out duel to grass. Just like, I'm better than you. Right. Right. <laughs> like, just to annoy me. Uh, I, I think, in all seriousness, after that uh, ending to Game Three, I think it just pissed off the Blues, and yep. now they're they're starting to find a, a new level. Um, and, and and the puck luck was clearly on their side in Game Four. Like thirty five seconds into Game Four, they get a lucky break. They score again in the first on another lucky break of pinballs off a few bodies to make it two to nothing. They get a few breaks in the third. Brent Burns hits the post. Bennington does what he does best, holding the fort in key situations. And then Sunday's game five, Bennington in the first held the fort. He gave his team, like Tukaras did a few times in these playoffs, he, he held the fort, he gave his team a chance to regroup, find their feet, and, and just get going. And uh, the Sharks outshot the Blues 11-4 to in the first period of game five. One of the shots that goes in goes in on Martin Jones, one of the four shots that the Blues took. That was the only goal of the period. So the St. Louis Blues somehow come out of that period with a one nothing lead. From that point on, the Sharks look flat. Like, on the stat sheet, they look flat. 20-6, to six, the shots in the middle frame. At least 14 before the 10-minute mark of the second period came and went. Did you know that 14 of St. Louis's first 24 shots came from the slot? the most dangerous spot in the ice. No, like that's absolute craziness. 
And then in the third period, where the Sharks maybe have a chance to turn the tide, they just keep up the pressure. They, uh, um, I, I'm trying to remember what the the shot count was in uh, in, in the final frame, but it was pretty lopsided. The, the shots uh, from the start of the second to the end of regulation were 36 to 10 for St. Louis. Like that's how much of a 180 it was in the first period onwards. Uh, the Sharks gave the Blues eight power plays to work with six in the final frame alone. And uh, the score could have been a lot worse if it wasn't for Martin Jones. Uh, Jane Schwartz got a hat trick, his 10th, 11th, 12 goals of the playoffs. Um, Bennington rarely tested, like I said, after the first period, but when called upon was big. Um, and on a few of the goals that went in on Martin Jones early in this game, he didn't look sharp either. Um, I do think the health of the Sharks is reason for concern. Um, I think if I'm the Blues, regardless of who's playing on San Jose, I am in trouble if I don't finish this thing in six. Yeah. They cannot afford a game seven. If yeah, it goes seven and the Sharks have home ice advantage, I don't like St. Louis's chances. They need to put the final nail in the coffin in their own building in front of their home fans. That's how they got to do it. Yeah, I could see that. Um, that would be kind of uh, interesting. Um, but, yeah, no, I think, like, it's kind of like, uh, it reminds me of uh, game one, or the first round of the Sharks and the Golden Knights, where it seemed like the Golden Knights were dominating uh, the first yeah. half of the, you know, the series, and then the Sharks win game six, and then all of a sudden they have all the momentum in game seven. So, yeah, I could see that happening where, you know, the Sharks win game six um, somehow, um, and then all of a sudden game seven happens, and they're like, oh, right, we're, we're the Sharks. We're a good team kind of thing. So they kind of like get yeah, reintegrated. And, and, and as Martin Jones showed in that Vegas yeah. series, he can steal a game if he's compelled to. Yeah, it's true. Like that game, that game six, the Sharks won is not possible without Martin Jones. For sure, for sure. I will say though that if Hurdle, Pavelski, Eric, and Eric Carlson can play, um, in in game six, it's a hundred percent tougher for the Sharks to win. Well, I was saying that this play. series is over. Like, just hand the game six to the Blues. Like, this series <laughs> yeah, is if over. Yeah, the Blues do their thing. Yeah, yeah. It'll, it'll, yeah. Hurdle, it'll Hurdle's like their best player, um, at this point. And, uh, you know, I mean, they still have Brent Burns. They still have uh, Evander Kane and Joe Thornton, of course. Couture has been amazing. But Hurdle, Pavelski, and Eric Carlson, like, that's what gave them their edge. Um, So it seems to, like, so if they're not healthy and they're not, or if they're, particularly if they're not playing, um, yeah, I think it's the Blues are definitely going to win game six um and they're in trouble um let's go to ralph krueger i just did some brief research on this uh on this guy first off he's he he was announced as the buffalo savers head coach um but i did i just did some like brief little uh research on this guy so he was first off there's a couple of interesting things about him first off he uh he coached the switzerland world uh cup for a couple of years from 1998 to 2009 
Um, he was also the Edmonton Oilers assistant coach for two years in 2010 and 2011. And then he became the head coach in 2012, um, which was the shortened year, um, the 2013 year. The Oilers did not win the playoffs or did not make it to the playoffs, but they were still decent. Um, and I was looking at their team that year. They, they That was the team that had like Devin Dubnik in it. Uh, they they had Ryan Whitney, uh, Jeff Petrie was on the team, Justin Schultz, uh, Jordan Eberle, Taylor Hall, Sam Gagne, a couple of those guys, Ryan Nugent Hopkins. Um, but like, you know, the Edmonton Oilers weren't dead last that year. Uh, they went 19, 22, and 7 um, in 48 games. Um, so like, you know, obviously that's still a losing record, but that's not terrible. Um, considering what the Oilers were at, at that stage. Yeah, um, com- compared to some of the other teams yeah. that they iced, that wasn't actually half bad. Yeah, and then I found the most interesting part about Ralph Kruger's career. Um, after he was let go from the, uh, uh, from the 2012-2013 Oilers, he, uh, he started to coach football, um, uh, co- uh, soccer, um, in, in yeah, the Euro- European football. He yeah. was. Um, he, uh, he. He was. Uh, I think he was a chairman for Southampton. He was football. a chairman for Southampton, and then he be- he shortly became the coach there for a bit. Um, so he started to become an actual like soccer coach. Um, I say football because I'm just looking at his uh, his his Wikipedia page, but it was. Um, but it, it's a foot. It's it's soccer. Um, he became a chairman for Southampton for about a cent, uh, a decade, um, and I find that kind of interesting that he was like you know he switched to soccer, which is kind of a a, a different sport, and then now he's back um, in Buffalo uh, coaching there. Um, I do kind of wonder. Um, oh, I guess he never was the co- uh, a coach in soccer, but he was a chairman mm-hmm. in soccer. But um, it is kind of interesting that this is like a. You would think that he was, he would con- continue on to be like in soccer, but instead he's back to uh, being an ice hockey coach here um, and being the coach. Um, I do wonder if like you know, like I think the Sabers for years now need help on defense or just coaching defensively. Um, and that's what was missing um, for the past couple of years with Housley. Um, so I do wonder um, what Kruger can do with um, with this team in that regard. Um, it's un- you know, and that's the the other thing is is that he hasn't coached or hasn't even been in hockey uh, for a decade. And as you know, like things change. Um, you know, the game has changed so much back then where it used the specialization used to be all about uh, toughness, grittiness, and all that stuff. But, like, now it's all about speed and skill, um, which still I, I am curious about how he's going to utilize that um, in the future. Yeah, so um, here, here's a quote to, to kind of disprove what you said. He says, I believe that I'm very fresh. I stay very close to the game. All the relationships I built over the years are warm. I've been in contact with head coaches over these last years. It's always been my startup site, NHL.com. 
NFL.com. Just watching games and observing the way the league is operating has always been important to me. I know there's going to be some hard work ahead, but I personally look for opportunities where I'm going to be challenged and continue to grow as a leader. So I, I guess on that note, I didn't know that quote until then, but um, yeah, I guess on that note, like, yeah, okay, so he is on the right mindset. It's not like he's going to, yeah, you know. he definitely has the mindset for sure. It, it's I, now I it's just like we have to see if how it's going to work. Um, yeah, I think life. this is actually going to be like let let's let's let let's uh, put it this way. It's an outside the box coaching hire. Yeah, by the Buffalo Sabers, hundred percent for sure. Do I think it could pay major dividends? Absolutely. Um, I think the Sabers are a team that are in a position that is learning to be consistently good every year. Um, they certainly started off well with Phil Housley this year in the first sixty or so days of the regular season, but they couldn't sustain that level of success with yeah. him. And when you look at the resume of Ralph Kruger, uh, Ralph Kruger, it's not very glamorous when it comes to the win column. But I think his stats would be a lot better if he was given a fair shake in Edmonton. I really believe the Oilers weren't as patient with him as they should have been. I think he deserved more time to change that group, to turn that group around. Um, he got a 0.65 point per game with Yakupov, who, as we all know, never really did show the promise he had as an NHL or as a first overall pick. But in his earlier years, I wonder if this was the case, knowing what we know about Yakupov now, I wonder if this was the case of a coach getting a lot out of somebody. The other thing that people need to know about Ralph Kruger is that he was a part of the coaching staff on Team Europe that shocked everyone by going to the World Cup of Hockey Finals in 2016. You had guys from Slovenia, and by guys from Slovenia, I mean Aze Kopitar. You had guys from Slovakia, you had guys from Germany, to name a few, not getting too much time to get to know each other and play on the same line. They bought in, they bought in quickly, and they went to the finals. And the best example off the ice of Ralph Kruger that I've heard so far is him going incognito at a Buffalo bar to gauge the interest of Sabres fans and really find the heartbeat, the pulse of this city. Fans in this market are frustrated about different things, how their team is performing. They get emotional talking about their team because they love their team. This is a proactive way of showing you give a damn. And personally, I cannot remember the last time I heard a coach doing something like this. It's a breath of fresh air. It's very refreshing. And I hope that leads to success in Buffalo. I think Ralph Kruger is the perfect man at the time of his hiring he's the perfect man to lead this team yeah yeah it will be interesting to see but yeah for sure you just mentioned it it's it's an unusual hire um unconventional hire but i i i am curious to see how it goes though um but yeah i guess my main concern is is that since he's been out of the league for so long uh yeah. what has he learned um, and all that stuff. So, you know, maybe he has learned what he has done, but um, I, I don't know if you li or if anyone here listens to uh, Spitting Chicklets, but Ryan Whitney is a co-host there, and he was, like, praising that Ralph Kruger was the best coach he's ever had. Um, so um, so he he had high praises for Ralph Kruger. Um, so maybe, I don't know, maybe he has... Um, a chance to uh, to be be good. Uh, we'll see. And and a reminder, he coached the Edmonton Oilers for one season. Yeah, that's true too. Um, he also he's but 
He's also coached the uh, the Switzerland uh, team for for a while now, mm -hmm. um, as well. So yeah, I'm just saying that when when, oh. when Ryan Whitney only had a coach for a year, and he says that's the best coach I've ever had. That like, speaks volumes. Yeah, that speaks volumes. And also, um, I'm just looking here. He was uh, the head coach for uh, Team Europe in the World Cup. So. Um, there's that. He also was yeah. the head coach there. Yeah, like like, like I said, he, he's he's able to get guys to buy in pretty quickly. Yeah. yeah. Um, Essa Lindell, um, he resigned with the Stars for six years, five point eight million. Um, this is a little bit, you know, this is good. This is kind of an interesting signing here, um, because uh, well, first off, Essa Lindell is is a good defenseman, but I still feel like this is a little bit too high. Um, I wonder, I know Miro Haskinen has a, a couple more years left uh, before he becomes an RFA, but um, this totally affects his his value coming up. John Klingberg also, because those two are, you know, much better than Lindell, but Lindell is like, you know, he's a good defensive player. I know he had those like diving um, stuff that happened to him this playoffs, but um you know, this is, uh, I still feel like it's a little bit high, but uh, maybe in time it can work out for them. He's only 24 years old. We'll see. Um, but it seems like he's always been like a, you know, like a 30 point, 35 point guy um, in the future. So there is, like, if, if he can be like a 40 or 50 point player uh, defenseman, then yeah, this is a steal of a signing. But otherwise, I don't think it's um, it's a great deal for them. So, uh, I'm I'm gonna delve deep into why I think the Stars thought he was worth this kind of a pay raise. And I've heard the name Nikita Zaitsev being thrown out. This is a Zaitsev-esque kind of contract, yeah. and I guess it all depends on how well or how not well he plays. Um, but just taking a look at his point totals, six goals, 18 points, 72 games. That's year one. Year two, seven goals, 27 points in 80 games. Year three this year, 11 goals, 32 points in 82 games. Steady improvement, yes. Lights out offensive defenseman, bit of a stretch at this point. Now, in fairness, he does chew up a lot of ice time. He's done so since his rookie campaign. His time on ice average as a rookie was 21 minutes, 52 seconds per game. Very impressive considering the only guy that averaged more was John Klingberg. Goes up to 22.05 in his second year. Second behind, John Klingberg. Pretty impressive. And he finished second and fourth respectively in total penalty kill time on the Stars' blue line during his first two years as well. So he was, he was uh, eating up a lot of penalty kill minutes too. Yep. It's average time on ice per contest this year shot up to 24 minutes and 22 seconds that's over a two, two minute upgrade again second to john klingberg he led all-star skaters in totally and total penalty kill time on ice with 265 minutes 44 seconds which is over 100 minutes more than his previous personal best so he spent a lot more time on the penalty kill this year he also finished third on the team in hits with 143 his 161 block shots were first on the team, 11th in the NHL. And in years one and two, respectively, 
second and third on the team in block shots. So, like you said, he's a top four defender that is no more for hitting, shot blocking, and chewing up minutes. But he's also started to show a bit of offensive upside. I don't think the value as deal will be worth what he brings unless he does all those other things while scoring 40 to 50 points a year. And I know they're probably going to be freeing up cap space by letting Mark Mathot walk this year, doing the same to Martin Hansel next offseason when his contract's up. They're also going to now have plenty of time to re-sign Zuccarello, which is, I guess, a proactive positive here by getting this out of the way. But I'm wondering, when it comes to adding depth down the road and keeping themselves relevant, is Dallas taking themselves out of the picture already? Because let's not forget that Miro Heiskinen ranked sixth amongst star skaters in power play time and penalty kill time during the regular season. Not talking defensemen, skaters. That's forwards, defense. He was also third in total average time on ice per game with 23 minutes and 7 seconds. Again, rookie season. 12 goals, 33 points, 182 shots in 82 games as a rookie. He picked up the slack when John Klingberg went down to injury. And I know that Lindell's average time on ice in the playoffs was nearing 27 minutes, but Miro was at 25 minutes and change, and that's more than Klingberg, almost a full minute ahead of Klingberg. When you look at John Klingberg, the lowest point total in his career during his rookie season was 40. He surpassed 50 points three times in his NHL career. So if I'm Jim Nill, I'm shaking my boots right now because you have Ben, you have Sagan, you have Radulov all getting paid upwards of $5 million. In the case of Sagan and Ben, it's more like 8 to $9 million bucks each. Bishop is around 5 to $6 million per year. And now Lindell is making almost $6 million per year. So when it's time to re-up Heiskanen in two years, when it's time to re-up John Klingberg three seasons from now, I am a little bit concerned if I'm the Dallas Stars. I, I honestly do, I honestly don't know even if Miro uh, sorry even if Essa Lindell plays up to its potential I don't even know if the stars win this deal uh that's where I disagree I feel like they're in pretty good shape um like you know I, this kind of, this kind of deal reminds me of uh we were just talking about him uh Jacob Slavin um mm. contract you know, Slavin is making five point three million, um, and um, if that's the you know, I guess I feel like Slavin's a better defenseman than Lindell. But if you know, if Slavin, if Lindell can be anywhere close to what Slavin has been, um, then yeah, I think this deal has been is a steal. Um, especially when you consider that, like, yeah, he's their third best defenseman. Um, it's not even close uh, compared to all the other guys they have, um, but um, like he does help a lot on the defensive side of things, um, and he's not like you know he lets John Klingberg and Heiskanen carry on with the offensive stuff, um, and if you know if you need those kind of players who can be the shutdown defenseman. And that's something that he's been capable of doing, especially since he's only 24 years old. So that's not going to be like um, that bad of a contract when when it happens. Um, 
I am. I, I do think it, having said all that, I do think it is a little bit high, but I don't think it's going to be a, a contract that they're going to regret, even if Lindell matches uh, what his contract uh, suggests it is. Um, you know, I think they're paying for his potential versus what he's been uh, capable of right now. Um, so there's a risk involved in that, but I don't think it's um, it's like egregious that he he's being paid that much um, for the future. Yeah, we'll we'll have to wait and see. There'll be interesting yep. times in Dallas ahead in a couple of years. But for sure, I, it, it's just how they're going to manage Sagan and Ben and Ben Bish uh, and Ben Bishop. And those contracts, like Carolina doesn't yep. have to worry about that. That's the thing. Well, Sagan and Ben and Bishop are, like, their contracts are going to be up in a couple more years. So, like, well, they don't have to worry about yeah. that well, until, yeah. you know. I, I, I guess by the time uh, Lindell's it's more, it's more it's, Kling, it's more Klingberg, Heiskanen, um, and Radulov they're going to have to worry about because their UFAs it, are going to be coming up pretty soon. Um, yeah, and those are more of the core players. It's just finding a way. It's just finding a way to balance everything. Yep. I, I just don't know if the Bears can do it that well while making their team better depth wise. Uh, I think yeah, they, they might have to rely on drafting in order to stay relevant. Yeah, that's fair. Well, uh, yeah, I guess we'll see. Um, it's one of those things that we'll have to see. Like in like next year, if we talk about it, then we'll. Um, it'll be something that yeah. we can it, I, say. I'm more but for now, it's, things it's to all come because it's just like, okay, I'm making at least what Lindell is making. That's right, right, right. Say. I see what you mean. Yeah, I, I, get, I get what you're saying. Uh, we have a couple of minutes left before we get into Bruins Sends. Uh, John Davidson, who was the uh, president of the Columbus Blue Jackets, uh, he's now the Rangers president of hockey operations. He used to yep. have that spot beforehand but um it looks like he's gonna be the rangers guy now um which is kind of it's 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 kind of like for foreshadowing what's going to happen with columbus now where i feel like this may show that everyone in columbus not just panarin bobrovsky are going to be leaving um and so john davidson is going to the rangers yeah, say what you will about the Blue Jackets, but John Davidson was there for pretty much all of their success. Uh, this hockey market didn't really experience hardly any playoff appearances before his arrival. Yeah, and this he he, he was in charge for a pivotal time for the franchise. Yeah, um, the growth of this franchise, winning a playoff series for the first. First time ever this year, sweeping the best team in the league in order to get it done. Um, just. Drafting, developing pieces like Seth Jones and Brian Johansson and, um, you know, getting Sergei Bobrovsky. Like, John Davidson was here for a lot of that. And um, you, you look at his record as um, as the Blue Jackets uh, president of hockey ops and alternate governor. They went 285, 209, and 46. One of uh, winners of at least 45 games in each of the past three seasons, including... Uh, Columbus best 50 in 2016-2017. There is an appetite to play in Columbus now, like there has never been. And I think uh, a big role in that. And now he's going to a Rangers team on the rise 
once their young superstars evolve into NHL studs. You have Alexander Georgiev, who really showed some positive signs uh, as King Henrik's backup. You have Krasov, you have Shazjorkin, you have Anderson, Pionk, Scheidel, uh, Zibanejad, who has evolved into a 30-goal, 70-point score now. This team also has a boatload of draft picks on the horizon, including two firsts in 2019. Um, the Rangers have definitely gained here, and Columbus has definitely lost. And like you said, they're probably going to keep losing pieces. Yeah, so it's something to keep an eye on for sure. Um, let's go to uh, Memorial Cup preview. Um, yeah. So, um, you, you, you take this on cause you know, you obviously know more about this than I do. So, uh, we'll start with the Guelph storm, uh, probably the most battle tested team in this entire field, um, swept their first round opponent rather easily, almost saw their run came to an abrupt end in the second round though, after losing their first three tilts to the London Knights and Guelph reverse swept them to advance to round three where they find themselves down three one to Saginaw in the conference finals no big deal they win three straight take that series in seven games in the finals fall behind two nothing to Ottawa you guessed it win four straight to take the title on home ice obviously the star of the show is Nick Suzuki who is a Montreal Canadiens prospect former Vegas prospect traded to Montreal for Pacioretty. Uh, he took home OHL playoff MVP honors by scoring 42 points in 24 games, including, I believe it was 11 points in uh, the six game finals, which is pretty good. Um, they also have close to a dozen NHL prospects on this roster, including Isaac Ratcliffe, who got 30 points in the playoffs. Uh, they also have Mackenzie Entwistle, Nate Schnarr uh, playing depth roles on the squad. Uh, Dmitry Samrukov, a talented Oilers defensive prospect. Um, you, you talk about uh, the Oilers and their future. They're, they actually might have some good young prospects on their hands. Um, they're a lot like the 67s. They have no quit. They can fall behind and bounce back with a series of goals. All they need is one power play chance to turn the game around. The skills there, the drive is there. They're well coached by George Burnett. They cannot be underestimated uh, in this tournament whatsoever. Uh, then we go to the Prince Albert Raiders, a team who won 54 games, the second most of any CHL franchise this year. Uh, they swept Red Deer in round one before uh, surviving a six-game series with Saskatoon and Edmonton, respectively, in rounds two and three. Uh, then they go to overtime in game seven of the WHL finals against Vancouver, but uh, they were able to... Uh, make uh, their first WHL title happen since 1985. And uh, now they're uh, going to Halifax uh, to play in this tournament. Um, they also have a lot of NHL prospects. Uh, Ian Scott is a Leafs goaltending prospect. Uh, Brett Leeson, Dante Hanoon, Noah Gregor, Alec Assay, Protest have posted at least 20 points in these playoffs. Parker Kelly is a sense prospect. He's posted 17 points in these playoffs. If I'm Prince Albert, I'm kind of worried about the workload, though, because the WHL has the longest regular season out of these three leagues, I would say as far as touring, because they're playing teams in several different provinces and U.S. states. There's B.C., there's Alberta, there's Manitoba, there's Saskatchewan. In the U.S., you've got cities like Seattle, Portland, Spokane, Everett. There's a ton of travel there. And we saw a talented Swift Current Broncos roster win their way to the Memorial Cup tournament last year. Then they
then they drop three straight. Their tournament's over just like that. They finish in last place. So they go up against Vancouver in that tough seven-game series. Then they go into a Halifax time zone that's three or four hours ahead of them. Uh, I'm kind of worried that history is going to repeat itself for the WHL champ in 2019. The good news is after Friday's game, Prince Albert had two days off. So it'll be interesting to see how they bounce back uh, Monday and Tuesday and, and Wednesday. But uh, what I'm also concerned by not playing two days, I wonder if momentum won't be on their side, whereas a lot of these other teams will have a bit more going their way. So it'll be interesting to see um, how they do. Um, then we go to the QMJHL champion, Ruin Aranda Huskies. Uh, notable prospects there, Habs prospect Joel Teasdale. Um, there's also Raphael Harvey Pinard, both recorded 40-plus goals in the regular season. Alex Bocage wasn't far behind with 13 tallies of his own in eight games. I would say the guy that not too many people are talking about is Peter Abandonado, who is not only the leading scorer on the team with 111 points in 68 regular season games, he was also the QMJHL's top point producer this year. Um, from a team perspective, they're 59 wins, most in the CHL this season. Uh, in the playoffs, Joel Teasdale just mentioned him. He led all QMJHLers with 34 points in 20 games. Felix Bebo had 14 goals and 29 points in 20 games, as did Noah Dobson, who was in the tournament last year with the eventual champion Akadi Bathurst Titan. Uh, he's also an Islanders prospect. Uh, Abba Donato, uh, the leading scorer in the regular season, 27 points in the 15 playoff appearances he had uh, this year. Which brings us to the host team, Halifax Mooseheads, who aren't one of those teams that got in only because they're the hosts. They're actually a good team. Uh, they made it to the QMJHL finals only to lose to Ruin Naranda in six games. Uh, they were a top 10 team in the CHL during the regular season, recording 49 wins and spending a whopping 26 weeks on the splits, the most of any team in this tourney, by the way. Uh, Raphael Lavoie, who is NHL draft eligible this year, scored a beauty goal on Sunday. He had scored 20 goals in the QMJHL playoffs, which is pretty impressive for a playoff performance. Uh, Samuel Aslan has scored 48 of his 82 career QMJHL goals this year alone. Uh, you have Blackhawks goalie prospect Alexis Gravel posting 33 wins in the regular season, along with another 14 in the playoffs. Doesn't have the sparkling goals against the average and save percentage that a guy like Samuel Harpery has with Ruin Naranda, but he has to play a big role for the Mooseheads. Uh, player to watch, if I had to choose the player to watch, I'm going with, well, um, Alexei Turopchenko, who is a Blues prospect. 17 goals and 43 points in 62 regular season games in his second OHL season. Slight upgrade from his rookie stats. In the playoffs, he got 13 goals and 19 points in 24 games, which is decent. Seven goals and one assist from games two to five of the OHL finals. Really turned it up in that finale with Ottawa. He had three straight multi-goal games during that stretch as well. We saw what he was capable of in the second game of this journey when he got a first period natural hat trick against Drew Naranda. Uh, once the storm fell behind in that game, I'm expecting a coming out party for him, and I'm expecting a coming out party for the stone uh, for the uh, Guelph Storm, provided they make the semifinal for the finals. The only way they don't win this tournament is if they get knocked out in the round robin. 
if they have a shot, if they get to the semifinals, if they clinch a spot in the finals, doesn't matter how they get there. If they survive the round robin, this tournament is being won by Guelph. Far down guaranteed, rocking it in. Interesting. All right. That you, is my prediction. You sound confident there. Yeah. They, they just have that if factor. I can't explain it. All they right. just have it. Um, I, I, I was watching the Halifax uh, Prince Albert game. Um, and they, uh, both, both uniforms looked really nice. Um, so I, that, that's my yeah, only comment about the Memorial Cup. That, that was a sick hit. Yeah. Oh yeah. And I saw that too on, on Twitter and you showed it, that to me. Um, but, yeah, that, uh, that, that looked like old school nineties rough and tumble hockey. Like I yeah. haven't seen a hit like that in a while. But my only contribution is that the uh, Halifax uh, uniforms are look awesome, and so do Prince Albert's. So that was cool. Yeah, the the the, the uniforms in general that they wear, I really like them too. Yeah, that's uh, that's the team that uh, McKinnon and Druin both played for. Yep, I knew that. Um, and Zadina and Timo Meyer, a lot of yeah, they, they they produced a lot of NHL ready players. Nico Escher yeah. too. Nico is another one. Yeah. Um, all right, let's go to the Bruins send segment. Um, I I kind of want to talk about the Bruins because uh, they're they're really hot right now. I don't know yeah. if you noticed, Steve. Um, yeah, yeah, they're, they're they're playing quality playoff hockey and look like yeah. the team I cheer for. Yeah, for sure. Uh, they're well. First off, I'm I mean, if you didn't know already, they're into the Stanley Cup Finals. Woo! First time in, hey. since 2013. Um, it's funny too because there's a billboard out right by the garden that says that it's like 110, like, um, like the, Bru- uh, the Bruins uh, beat the drought because uh, it's been 110 days since the Patriots won the Super Bowl. Um, so, <laughs> oh um, my God, yeah. It's just I forgot so, that. So, so what's it's interesting, so just, yeah. just, just a backstory of this before you continue. Red Sox won the World Series yep. in October. Yep. Patriots won the Super Bowl in February. Yep. Bruins could win the Stanley Cup. Unfortunately, the Celtics are out, so the four-peat isn't going to happen. No, but the three-peat is, is pretty good. Three of <laughs> three of the big four sports teams that they have could win titles. And three of my... Same, in the same year, which is crazy. And three of my favorite teams at that, too. So I don't, yeah, I'm like a casual Celtics fan, but like I'm a diehard Bruins, Red Sox, and Patriots fan. So... Um, I can't complain for the rest of my life if, if this not, happens. Not going to lie, if, 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 they, if they win the Cup this year, I'm not even going to be mad. Like, that's a very <laughs> impressive feat, and a lot of sports teams, a lot of sports cities would kill for that kind of I know. success in one well, year. Well, it's, it's been like a, it's, it's not even been just this year, but like for about the last like 15 years, I want to say, especially the Red Sox and the Patriots, but um, yeah. the past like 15 years or so, it seems like the Bruins... Red Sox, Patriots, and Celtics are always in the playoffs. They're always in the mix, at least, um, and and sometimes they win. Um, so um, and all and this time, all things are aligning here. Uh, yeah, they're they're all doing it at once. Yeah, Tuka Rask. Um, I I said this during the Hurricanes postmortem, but Tuka Rask was has been was incredible this series. Uh, he gave up five goals in the in the four games um, against Carolina. Um, and that puts like a uh, 9.56 save percentage. Um, he gave up, he had a shutout in game four. He only allowed one goal in game three. 
Um, and then I guess he gave up uh, two goals in uh, in the other two games, but um, uh, separately. But uh, yeah, he he's been incredible. This, he's totally shutting everyone up. Um, I did. Uh, I I've been watching some post game stuff when when it happens. But Joe Haggerty and Michael Felger, um, as we know, are very anti Tuka Rask, but. Um, even even Felger has admitted that he's been phenomenal, um, and Joe Haggerty um, also says that too. Uh, but um, but I, I found it kind of interesting too because it's like you want to you want like a big part of like hating Michael Felger and and Joe Haggerty is like 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 admitting that they're wrong and all that stuff. So they haven't done that yet. Um, and Haggerty said something interesting, which is kind of fair too, that he was saying that his whole criticism about Tuca is that he hasn't won the big one. Um, so he says that if the Bruins do win the Stanley Cup Finals, then he's going to give Tuca Rask all this credit. But then that also implies that like Tuca Rask will be at fault if they don't win the the Stanley Cup Final, which is something that I don't like. Uh, Tuca Rask has been the MVP this year. Um, if the Bruins do win the Stanley Cup, he already has the con Smythe in the bag. Um, there's no other Bruins player that I can even think of that um, would would be close to getting it. Um, it, it. I know I'm getting ahead of myself, but um, if yeah, that, that happens, that, that'll be just that'll be just straight up righteous. Yeah. Like <laughs> everyone that hates Felger and Haggerty. Yep. Not only does Rask win a Stanley Cup as a starting goalie, he wins the con Smythe. Yeah, yeah, I know. The same year. So, so that would be uh, that would be very fitting if that happens. But I, you know, I'm in the mood where I I don't want to get ahead of myself. I don't want to like say like when we win the cup and all that stuff. So I wanna, I wanna you know keep level headed here, um, and we'll see about that. Um, yeah. Also, um, there's another thing that I was going to say. Oh, um, Tuga has. Uh, so in the three games where the Bruins could clinch the series in these playoffs, Tuca. So that's like that includes. So that's Game Seven um, against Toronto, Game Six against Columbus, and Game Four against Carolina. He has only given up one goal in those games. Um, so uh, that's impressive too. So when you know when the Bruins are on the verge of clinching a series, they've been able to do it, which is. Kind of great when you think about it, because back to 2013, he uh, uh, they kind of faltered, um, and he gave up two goals of, in 17 seconds, um, famously against the Blackhawks. So, um, so it looks like this is a new Tuka Rask, at least temporarily speaking. Um, we did mention I did mention that the uh, the Patriots won the Super Bowl in February and it's been 110 days. It's been a horrid, uh, long, long night before um, uh, this this whole drought's been uh, terrible for me. But um, <laughs> a lot of yeah. sports areas yeah, yeah. Um, like Ottawa, especially Toronto would be just like, oh, right. yeah, tell us. Really it's, it's, been, it's been horrible, Steve. What can I say? Um, but uh, 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 the only thing, the only thing that Ottawa and Toronto have probably celebrated is Grey Cup titles. That's yeah. it. Um, so I, I do want to mention, though, the reason why I'm bringing up the Patriots here, well, at least you guys have the Raptors, so so there's that. 
Um, yeah, the Raptors haven't even won an NBA title, though. Right, but they're, I mean, they're doing better than the Celtics. Um, well, yeah. Uh, the Charlie, uh, I, just, I wanted to say that, uh, so during the AFC Championship game when uh, Tom, uh, the Patriots won that game, Tom Brady had this Instagram post where he played uh, Bad Boys, um, and then uh, with him goofily smiling, and then he showed Gronk goofily smiling. Uh, Charlie McAvoy recreated that on his Instagram page. Um, so he channels Tom Brady there, which was kind of a cool ode to uh, to Tom Brady there. Um, I liked it, which is kind of cool too, because I know that Charlie McAvoy grew up uh, in New York. Yeah, uh, so right. I, I he imagine had, he, had he, he had that tweet yeah. where he said, I hate the Bruins so much right now. Yeah, yeah, he had that. Um, I'm not sure what his football team was, but it, it's it's pretty cool that he's able to uh, to get into the city mix. I love when that kind of stuff happens. I know it's like it's it can only happen in New England because um, they're successful for all cities across the board. But um, it's it was pretty cool that he was uh, Charlie McAvoy did that, um, and Tory Krug was in there. I think there was uh, Pasternak was there as well. Um, so it, it was a little bit unlike what Tom Brady did, but it's still cool that he was able to uh, replicate that um, and put it in the Bruins style there. Um, also, speaking of the Patriots, the Bruins will go 11 days between the Eastern Conference Final and the Stanley Cup Final. So they're reaching out to the NFL's New England Patriots on how to handle the layoff. Um, so they're actually talking to the Patriots about how do you uh, cope with uh, days off during the playoffs? Um, so that's that's going to be yeah. interesting. Um, and like, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's so there's 11 days since they clinched the first game um, to to when the, the first game of the Stanley Cup final will be, regardless of if the Blues win game six or if the Sharks win game seven. Um, so, um, yeah, it, it did get us, like, there has been debates on if it was smart to even let, to sweep the Hurricanes, because, you know, you don't want too much rust, um, but at the same time, it's like, you know, when you're hot, you're hot. Um, so I, I am a little bit worried about us peaking too early, um, in that sense, especially since Tuka Rask has been on fire. Um, but, uh, I don't know. I think at the same time, I think that once you start playing, um, again, I think they'll, the Bruins will start to figure things out. Also, it seems like Chara is injured, uh, relatively speaking. So maybe give them some rest. I think Pasternak has been injured. We'll find out that he's been injured after this, uh, this, uh, final. So I feel like will eventually find out, like, you know, maybe rest is good, um, but um, having 11 days off is is kind of crazy to me. Um, so we'll see. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm not I'm not so worried about your Bruins. Like you said, <laughs> they are the freaking Patriots giving them advice. Yeah. What could you want? Sure. You, have, you have Tom Brady, Bill Belichick giving you advice. Um, the, the fact is, they're either going to be facing a Blues team or a Sharks team, and both won't be equally as rested as them. Like, yeah. the Bruins, I think, have the perfect kind of rest because they beat Toronto in Game 7. They beat a tough Columbus team in six games before that. So, like, 
they they've been through those roller coaster more of emotions before. Yep. The Blues, if they win this series, it could go either six or seven games. It'll be at least six games. If the Sharks win, they're guaranteed to have three straight game sevens. Right. So I think rest Boston has the edge there. I think. Yeah, I, I, think I guess Boston that's true. Edge. They have time to work things out as well. But I think there is something to like that, like, like you know, like I look back to the Lightning and the Blue Jackets, where like the Blue Jackets were on edge for the last two months of the season, whereas the Lightning were able to coast into the playoffs, um, and then look what happened. So it's there is something to think about, as well as like the fact that uh, the Penguins got swept by the Islanders, and the Islanders got swept by the Hurricanes, and then the Hurricanes got swept by the Bruins. There is that curse where now the Bruins hold the stakes where they have to, um, they could be swept by whoever uh, they play next. Um, And then also uh, some interesting narratives, regardless of if the Blues or the Sharks win. Um, If the Sharks win, of course, it's uh, Jumbo Joe Thornton's uh, return to Boston. He was a former Bruins player. Um, and he will uh, play against the Bruins, so that will be interesting. And then if the Blues win, uh, the Bruins have uh, David Backus uh, on their team, um, which uh, and so uh, he, of course, used to be on the Blues. Um, so that will be interesting. It's funny, though, because like, if the Sharks win um, against the Bruins, I feel like I would be happy for Joe Thornton. Um, and I think that's more to do with the fact that the Bruins won in 2011. Whereas, like, if the if it's, like, Bruins-Blues and the Bruins win, I feel like Blues fans would, like, that would be, like, the extra nail in the coffin where, like, the Bruins, like, not only did the Bruins beat them in the Stanley Cup final, but the, David Backus is on the Bruins. And, and that, that must hurt much that much more. Um, so that would be an interesting thing for narrative reasons. Uh, personally, I think I'd rather have the Sharks just because they're more banged up um, and I, I like them more than the Blues, but I feel like the Blues are also beatable at the same time. Um, I think the Blues are going to be a, are also the tougher opponent um, as well, so I think I'd rather have the Sharks uh, play the Sharks, but I at this point, it doesn't look that way. Um, so we'll see. All I will guarantee is that my fantasy team is done because they're <laughs> yeah. down by like three points and no one got back from that. So yeah, we know that's year's a new year. We know that's what you, you, yeah, that's, that's all we care about is Steve's fantasy team. Um, let's go to the Sens. Speaking of which. Yeah, speaking of moving on to next year, we're already there in Ottawa. Um, Last Sunday, we got this tweet from TSN's Bob McKenzie. It says, Ottawa has asked for and received permission from Dallas to interview Stars assistant coach Rick Bonus. Should be noted, Rick Bonus, first head coach in modern-day Senators history. For all those of you who don't know, now you know. Uh, Bonus will be the sixth candidate interviewed by Ottawa. Others include Mark Crawford, the current intern coach. Troy Mann, the coach uh, with the Belleville Senators, almost got them to the playoffs. Jacques Martin, uh, the Sens coach that uh, lasted the longest um, in team history. 
DJ Smith, assistant coach for the Toronto Maple Leafs, and Nate Lehman. I can't remember what his connections are. There's no firm timetable on when they will name a new head coach, but the sense is that it's likely to happen by the end of the month. And we're at May 20th, so probably within the next week or so, assuming his prediction holds up. Then we get a seventh name entering the ring on Saturday, named Patrick Waugh. Yeah, we're talking about the second winningest goalie in NHL history, the three-time Consumite Trophy winner, the four-time Stanley Cup champion, someone who's actually won something, unlike the Ottawa Senators. But Patrick Waugh could be the guy that Ottawa hires to coach their team. Two words. Please don't. And it's not because that Patrick Waugh is a bad NHL coach. I actually think Patrick Wall is a good coach. He is just a tremendously bad fit for a team that struggles to stay out of the negative press. Let's start with the first reason, and that deals with St. Patrick's coaching approach. He's coached in junior hockey for many years. I'll give him that. He has won a Memorial Cup in the past as head coach for the Quebec Rampart. Okay. These next few years are going to be so critical for the development of Ottawa Stars. They have to get it right. So the question is, can he develop those young guys properly? Can he turn them into young stars that consistently produce every year and maintain their trust while doing so? Can he deliver success beyond three or four years, which previous coaches since Brian Murray and Jacques Martin have struggled to do? From an honest perspective, I haven't seen that from Patrick Waugh as an NHL head coach. He has a solid first year with Colorado, missed the playoffs in the two seasons that followed, and then he resigned. Yeah. The set at the start of 2018 were like Colorado, very reliant on defense. The outside guys like Tyson Berry, Matt Duchesne, Ryan O'Reilly, Gabriel Landerskog, Nathan McKinnon, when Wah was their coach, all talented stars. The sense of guys like Matt Duchesne, Mark Stone, Eric Carlson, Mike Hoffman, and Ryan Dezingle this time last year. The team defense was bad. During Patrick Waugh's best year as an Avs coach, his team gave up the sixth highest shots against per game. Best year as an Avs coach. That year, they were a top five team, 150 plus games. Still had the sixth highest shots against per game. Following season, they had the fifth highest shots against average. The next season, it goes to third highest. And then he reminds. Since the start of this decade, the Ottawa Senators have been outside the list of teams with the highest shots against averages. I'm talking top 10 teams. You know, you go into the NHL's website and you look at shots against per game and it goes from lowest to highest, highest to lowest, whatever. Right. From highest to lowest, they only appeared outside the top 10 twice since the start of the 2010-2011 season. When they were in the top 10, here's where they finished. Second most in 2011-2012. Eighth most in 2012-2013. Second most in 2013-2014. Sixth most in 2014-2015. Highest in 2015-2016. Seventh in 2017-2018. Highest this year. They had Corey Clouston, Paul McLean, Dave Cameron, and Guy Boucher playing the role of head coach in that order during this stretch of hockey. Four coaches yeah. have had this problem. Can Patrick Waugh buck that trend? In the three years he was with Colorado, he didn't. 
And then we get to the most important reason as to why this idea could blow up in Ottawa space. And it has nothing to do with any of the facts I just mentioned. It has everything to do with personality. Patrick Waugh is a guy like Melnick that hates to lose. They have that in common. Both want to win, but both minds have different ways of doing things. Melnick has been painted as an impatient, stubborn, my way or the highway type of owner. Doesn't care what you think about. Waugh gives zero F-bombs as well. He is a passionate guy with a set of beliefs and values and will not stand there and take it when those beliefs and values are attacked. He yeah. will bite back. All you have to do is ask Ronald Corey in 1995 when... Or Joe Sackett. And Chagwatt told him to his face, that's my last game in Montreal. Or Joe Sackett. And, yeah, or Joe Sackett. Like, when the Avs re-signed yeah. Tyson Berry, he wasn't the biggest fan. It sounded like he wanted the same what owner... Yeah. Did. Also wanted the Avs to go in on Radulov, who he coached in Quebec. That also didn't happen. There was an impasse, and he parted ways. So my question is, does Patrick Waugh trust Pierre Dorian? Does he trust Eugene Melnick? Can he deal with both of them? Can he adapt to an ever-changing roster? Again, it's not that he's a bad coach. He's just not the right one for this team. Plain and simple. Yeah. It, it, when I think of Patrick Waugh as the coach, I think of when he like pulls a goalie uh <laughs> with like five minutes left or six minutes left way too early. So (laughs) as a, as a hockey fan, this would be hysterical, but as you are outside of Ottawa, you are praying for this. I know. I know. You are inside of Ottawa. You are praying that this doesn't happen. Yeah. I'm trying to, I think there was a couple of stories back then where there was like, like where it would have been hysterical if it happened, but uh, not if you're a fan of the team, and this is one of those moments. Um, so, well, yeah, um, remember, remember when Matt Duchesne scored like his 30th goal of the year, yeah. like a 4-1 loss or something, and Patrick Ball ripped him after the game for it during a press conference. Yeah, yeah, like that again. It's like the Ottawa Senators are trying so hard to get out of this circus they have put themselves in. They might throw themselves back into the fire by making this hiring. Like, as far as I'm concerned, Pierre Dorian's job is online with this coaching hire. Yeah. He cannot mess this up. He needs to get the right guy. Oh, yeah, for I sure. don't know if he's the right guy. I really don't. Yeah, I don't think he is. I don't think you're uh, doing any saying any hot takes here. But yeah, no, you're you're right. Um, it would be it would be bad for the Sens if, if this were to happen. Yeah, I, I thought Jason Spezza maybe coming back to Ottawa was a stretch. And then I saw yeah. that. I'm thinking I'd rather Jason Spezza back in Ottawa than have Patrick You know, it, uh, are you – yeah, for Jason Spezza, you, you were saying that – or off the air that you didn't want this to happen. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I don't think it's, like, as big of a deal as you're making it out to be. I don't think it's – like, yeah, obviously he's not the, the player he was beforehand – before – but I feel like the Senators do need some veteran presence um, in the locker room. And what more than Jason Spezza returning to Ottawa, I think that that could be something that could be good. Um, I've, I've kinda, I kind of opened my idea to that a bit more. I've calmed down a little bit since. The, the fact is, he's chalked up 26 and 27 points respectively in his last two years. Uh, he got 33 goals in 2015. 2016 he scored a combined 31 goals in three seasons since nothing like the player that he was when he left ottawa but 
he was a former second overall pick. A lot of these guys are very young with high expectations on them, with expectations that they'll be good again with this young group. I think Spezza can help them deal because he's gone through yeah. that before. Yeah. And we've also seen with Brian Gibbons and Anthony Duclair, hey, put him on a top six role. Let's see what they can do. And they actually did pretty well. Maybe right. maybe if they put Spets on a bigger role, he might actually do decent, like get 40 to 50 points. It just can't be more than two years. And it can't be higher than two million. Like they they can't afford to sign him to a regrettable contract because he is not that kind of player anymore. It, yeah. The term and the money have to be right. I guess that I guess that's fair. It, like if if they're gonna sign him to like a large contract, then yeah, I would be against it. But if it's like a I don't know, even if it's like a four million, five million type deal, I'd be okay with that just for a veteran presence. It's like these seasons are they're in rebuild mode anyways it's like might as well take a shot at jason spez to see if he still has something left in the tank so yeah i'm okay with it but um we'll see how it goes um yeah um so then then we go to uh, some junior hockey news um so the ottawa 67s we were we were actually talking about it in between segments on the podcast yep. with brian fraser last week and uh, when we last left off that, it was 2-0 Ottawa. It stayed that way after the first period. So this is a must-win game six in Guelph. 67s have to win to force game seven at home. Guelph ties the game, of course they do, in the second period and proceeds to take it over from there. And here's how fast they did it. A member of the 67s radio crew was going down the stairwell from the upstairs booth all the way down to the dress room to get ready for a second intermission interview with one of the 67s. In the few minutes that took for him to get from point A to point B, Guelph scored three times. It went from a 2-2 tie to a 5-2 lead for the Storm in a matter of minutes. That's how much of a quick strike offense Guelph has. And Ottawa was able to score late to make it 5-3 after 40, but then Samarukov gets a power play goal midway through the final stanza. Pretty much sealed Ottawa's fate, like 6-3 with even nine minutes left. I thought, they're done. They're, they're not coming back from this. Guelph is just too good they're riding a huge wave of momentum uh ended up being an 8-3 loss they tacked on a few meaningless goals but um at the 6-3 goal really put the game out of reach and i know it sucks that the 67s after winning 14 straight after being up to nothing i'm sure a lot of fans are going to be pissed and say oh this team choked it away in a special edition in a couple of weeks i'm going to explain why it wasn't and why the 67 still accomplished a lot. The fact is they lost to a damn good Guelph team. They have a lot to be proud of. And I'm just sad for guys like Mikey DiPietro. That game two where he got hurt against Guelph, that might be his final OHL game. We don't know. Uh, Noel Hoffmeyer, Ty Felliber, they're not coming back next year. They had great years, gone through so much in previous years of the organization. I would have loved to see them win. Would have been nice to see guys like Kyle Maximovich and Lucas Chieto get to play in the Memorial Cup. I, I feel bad for the guys that won't be coming back next year on the team, who won't be on any OHL rosters. But overall, I'm proud of what the 67s gave this city. And I hope that years later, a lot of these guys will get together, sit back, and just reflect on how much good they did for the city and, and how much it meant to this city. Um, so hats off to the 67s. Um, you didn't need to bring home a trophy to validate how much this season meant to Ottawa, but it, it would have been nice if you did. But yeah. uh, not 
all not all brilliant stories have happy endings and the same mm-hmm. goes for the ottawa junior senators who i told you last week um for the second straight season they won the cchl title took home the fred page cup to advance the rbc cup and for a second straight season they lost in the semifinals um four three to the brooks bandits who ended up being crowned um champions uh, a day later um the junior sense didn't start the season well, but uh, used a rather interesting strategy to get things back on track. They constructed a team of what they wanted to be out of Lego blocks. Uh, very strange, I know, but it's it's very interesting. They got into the playoffs, yeah. lost two or three games the entire way, won the playoffs, won the Fred Page Cup, and came within two wins away of being crowned national champions. They also have a lot to be proud of and uh, certainly accomplished a, a lot, even though it's uh, ended in a very tough fashion. And in junior hockey, like, even if you win your league title, you can go, you, you have to go to another tournament. Like, your season continues. It can still end in heartbreak unless you're national champions. Right. Like, that's, you're, there's only going to be one team that's happy as a clam, and that's a team that wins everything. So, yeah, uh, yeah, uh, a tough year continues for Ottawa sports, but uh, the 67s and the junior sends at least gave Ottawa something to be proud of, whereas uh, another hockey team uh, didn't give us much to cheer for. But um, the, the it wasn't as bad of a hockey year as I expected it to be in Ottawa. There was some good time. There, there was some good times to be had. All right, well, at least that's something. Um, yeah. All right. Uh, that's it for us right now. It's kind of a short episode this week, which is kind of surprising considering everything yeah, that's I going on. Yeah, it would be a lot longer, actually. Yeah, but uh, we're ending early. Um, I mean, it's still an hour 50 minutes, so that's not, you know, yeah. it's not I guess, short. I guess that's but, kind of normal for us. Yeah, that is pretty normal. Usually we're around the an hour fifty three mark or fifty eight or whatever, um, but anyways, uh, yeah, we're gonna end relatively early. Um, yeah, you can catch us on SoundCloud um, if you're listening to that. iTunes. Uh, we're also on Spotify. Um, I think we're on Stitcher and every all those other podcast platforms. Um, we're what else? What was I gonna say? Um, our Twitter is lace up, lace up podcast. Our Facebook is lace them up. Um, yeah, our our com- our email is still open. Lace up bag at gmail dot com. Uh, we love to hear from you. Um, yeah, and uh, look forward to these uh, next couple of days for um, you know the hockey is almost over. Um, I hate these time, times of year, but I also love them uh, just because yeah, I, I, I know. I, 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 I must say, can, can we just say before we wrap up, this is actually going to be one of those hockey years that never ends because then we get into probably one of the most juiciest off-seasons in NHL history. Yeah, it's, the, this, be... it's true. This off-season is going to be pretty big for sure. There's a lot of unrestricted free agents and restricted free agents uh, let alone a lot of players on the trade market. Um, so yeah, the off season's gonna looks looks pretty uh, pretty cool. But uh, for the yeah, time and, being, and, may, you know, and maybe some rule changes too. Yeah, maybe we'll see. 
that could define how the game is called. So we'll yeah, see. yeah, but I, I don't know. I I just I I mostly uh, hate the this time of year just because it's like oh we, like you can literally count down the days of how many hockey games we have left, but also at the same yeah. time it's like you know champions are born and this is where it really matters. So um, we'll mm-hmm. see uh, we'll see how it goes. Um, I'm Brett Dubuff. I'm Steve Ellsworth. We'll talk again in the Stanley Cup Preview Show, Episode 173 of the Listen Up Podcast.